Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Hey there, welcome back to Looking Above. This week, we're going to be jumping into John chapters 13 and 14. 14. If you haven't had a chance to read them, maybe you want to just pause this and sit down and give them a quick read. Then you want to grab a notebook or journal and a pen and just make some notes as we go through this together. John chapter 13, the first verse says partway through, he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Of course, this is talking about Jesus. And I love that this just prefaces everything that's about to come here, because love is what motivates Jesus to action. And love is an action for Jesus. Love is something that he does. And as we read this following passage, we see how his love plays out here. Jesus is about to do what only slaves did in this time. So in this time period, the there were dirt roads, of course. They were not yet paved roads anywhere. And the roads were either very dusty or very muddy. The people wore sandals or were barefoot, and so their feet were very dirty. And of course, not only did people walk on these roads, but animals did as well. So we know what was mixed in with the dirt on these roads. So people's feet were pretty gross. And when you entered a home, a slave usually met you at the door of the home and washed your feet. So here, uh, Jesus and his disciples are gathering together for what we know as the Last Supper. Jesus, it says, verse 3, knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he has authority over everything. But instead of being full of pride, he is full of humility because of his love. And this love that we just just mentioned here in verse 1. And it says, He knows these things, verse 4, so he got up from the table, took took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. So here's Jesus who knows full well the authority that he has over everything. He knows who he is. And yet he gets up and starts washing the disciples' feet. It was just amazing, an amazing display. Um, In Barclay's commentary on John, he says, There is only one kind of greatness, and that is the greatness of service. The world is full of people who are standing on their dignity when they ought to be kneeling at the feet of their brethren. 
I've been thinking a lot about this the last couple of days, just being a person in leadership, being a pastor, and just thinking about um, all the people that we see who are Christian influencers, who are pastors, who are authors, who are leaders in the church, um, so many who are out in the public eye, and just wondering, is their greatness the greatness of service? Are they full of pride or are they full of humility? Am I full of pride or am I full of humility? Am I willing to kneel at the feet of my brethren? Am I willing to serve because of my love? It doesn't matter what authority we've been given. It doesn't matter what power we've been given uh, unless we are willing to live like Jesus get up from the table and do the servant's work. And so I've just been thinking about this, and maybe you can think about it too. Maybe you can discuss it with your groups. But I've been just thinking back through my life and the Christian leaders who have made the greatest impact on me, those who um, have stood out to me as godly men and women, and they're the ones who have been servants. I don't think very highly of those who are in leadership who aren't willing to serve. And that's why I really appreciate being a part of the team that I'm on right now here at New Life Church is because I work with servants. Um, The pastors here, Mike and Paul, you know, my bosses, they're servants and they live it. And um, the congregation probably has no clue of the dirty work that this staff or that their pastors do behind the scenes daily, weekly. You know, these guys who are taking out the trash and cleaning things and picking up after people and just, you know, doing the work of this remodel that we just went through. It's incredible and humbling and um, inspirational to me to watch them serve and it's being it's living like Jesus. Barclay went on and he says, when we're tempted to think of our dignity, our prestige, our place, our rights, let us see again the picture of the Son of God girt with a towel and kneeling at his disciples' feet. Of course Peter, doesn't really like this. He protests, no, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you won't belong with me. In other words, are you too proud, Peter, to let me do this for you? Because if you are, you're going to lose everything. And then they go on and Simon says, well, then wash my hands and my head and everything, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Jesus says, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. You disciples are clean, but not all of you because he knew who was going to betray him. But when we hear Jesus talk so often, there is some straightforward truth. A person who has taken a bath doesn't have to wash everything, you know, but when you've walked on these dusty roads, it's just your feet that need clean. But there's always a deeper meaning here behind this. And of course, he's talking about salvation and the cleansing benefit that has been received by the disciples already. But this foot washing symbolizes Jesus humbling himself and dying on the cross and the cleansing efficacy or effectiveness of his death for the believer. 
so when people would enter the house in this time period, they had to have their feet washed. It was the washing that came before entering into the house. And so when he's talking about needing to have their feet washed, here this is kind of representing baptism. It's talking about the washing that marks entry into the household of faith. If you've already received your salvation, you don't need to do that again. But then you get baptized. You get your feet washed so you can come into the house, the household of the Lord. I love that. I love that. All right, after washing their feet, he puts on his robe, and then he says to them, verse 14, Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. So if they were claiming to be his followers, then they needed to follow his example. 15, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. If their Lord did not think it was below him to perform this menial task for them, then they should not think it below them to serve each other and others. Verse 17, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. It's not enough for us to hear the teachings of Jesus or approve of the teachings of Jesus. It says God will bless us when we do them, when we put feet, when we put feet to it, when we put action behind our beliefs. God will bless us for doing it. We follow Jesus's example. We live it out and then we're blessed. In this next little section here, Jesus predicts that Judas is going to betray him. And he says it, of course, the first time kind of obscurely and the disciples aren't getting it. So then here in verse 21, now Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. So he had alluded to this in verse 18, but now he needs to say it expressly. And they can't believe it. So now they're kind of questioning and arguing amongst themselves. And Jesus responds, verse 26, It's the one to whom I give the bread, I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas. For the host of a meal at this time to offer a guest a special morsel, which is what Jesus is doing here in front of all of his other disciples, this was a sign of favor. So this may have been Jesus' final appeal to Judas, giving him this sign of favor, saying, I love you and I still believe in you. Please don't do this. Don't sell me (laughs) to these people who want my head. And maybe I'm thinking maybe it was also a reminder to the disciples of his love, even for the one who was about to do this heinous heinous thing. That in the days after his death, when they're thinking back and they're thinking how he lived with us, how could Judas have done this? He knew Jesus too, how could he have done this? For them to think back to this moment where Jesus knows what Judas is about to do, and yet he reaches out this morsel of bread, this sign of favor. I still love you, I still believe in you. 
But it says Judas turned to evil. He allowed Satan to take control. And Jesus knew that Judas had made this choice and told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. Go and get it over with. Verse 31, as soon as Judas had left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. So this whole time preceding this, over and over, Jesus keeps saying, the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. And now suddenly the time has come. Jesus's glory is about to be shown to the earth, and his glory was the cross. The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. Jesus glorified God by his obedience, even to death. And so Jesus tells them that I'm about to die. In verse 34, he says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So how did Jesus love his disciples? Let's think back about that. Jesus loved them and us selflessly. Jesus's desire was never for himself. Often when we love someone, our love is self-seeking, right? We love in order to be loved in return. We love in order to get something or to move ahead or um, to feel good. We have a self-serving love, but Jesus's love was selfless. It wasn't ever about himself, which is why he humbled himself and washed their feet, why he went to the cross for them, for us, because his love was selfless. Uh, Jesus's love was sacrificial. There were no limits to his love. His love meant that he was going to be in the most excruciating pain that any man can un- ever know. So often when we love, <laughs> we don't love very sacrificially. We love until it hurts and then we stop loving. Then we walk away. Then we get a divorce. Then we uh, back down or just kind of turn to our own selfish desires, right? Because when love hurts, when love is hard, we stop. We don't press through the hard and the hurt. We don't often love if it means pain. Jesus loved his disciples knowingly. He knew who they were. He knew their shortcomings. He knew their flaws, and yet he loved them. You know, often they say love is blind, but that's not true of Jesus's love. Jesus's love sees the worst and it loves anyway. But our love isn't like that, right? Our love uh, sees the worst and runs away. (laughs) Our love sees the worst and tries to fix or change someone. We don't love people for who they are in spite of who they are choosing to love them even though we see the worst in them. And Jesus loves forgivingly. He went to the cross for these men, these disciples, who were about to flee and forsake him. They were about to turn their backs on him. Peter, his best friend, was about to deny him and say, I never even knew him. And yet Jesus forgave them in advance of their sin. He knew who they were and he loved them with a forgiving love. 
In verse 35, he says to them, your love for one another, your love between you disciples, your love as Christians within the body of Christ will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's how we prove to others that we are Christ's disciples. And unfortunately, I think failure to do this, failure for people within the church to love each other is the reason why so many people leave the church. It's the reason why so many people question the church. It's why so many people call the church hypocrites. We say we love, we say we're like Jesus, and yet we're not. We don't even love each other, let alone the world. Let's move on to John 14. John 14, Jesus is about to die. He is about to leave his disciples, and life as they know it right now is going to fall apart. So what do we do in that situation? John 14, 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Wait, what? Jesus, like, are you kidding me? He's about to die. He's about to be taken from them. Their rabbi, their Lord is about to be gone. Things are about to get very dicey for them. And he tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why not? Trust in God and trust also in me. So what do we do in that situation when our world seems like it's falling apart? We believe in God. We trust in him and we trust in Jesus. We stubbornly cling to Jesus when things are falling apart around us. That's looking above We don't look at the situation. Disciples, don't look at the situation. Don't look at the fact that I'm not physically with you. Trust God and trust me. Look above the situation. Look at who I am. Look at all I have done and all I have taught you and cling to that. Verse 2, there's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? I love in the middle of this verse, I am going to prepare a place for you. Just a simple reminder of the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one that goes before us. He goes before us and he prepares a place for us. He did it in his life and he did it in his death. He's constantly going before us. There's nowhere that you can go that Jesus isn't already. And he says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. You know, people will often question, what's heaven going to be like? What What is heaven like? And right here, this is all that we need to know about heaven, to know that heaven is where we want to be. Because he says, you will always be with me where I am. That's heaven. Heaven is always being with Jesus. If we know who Jesus is, that should be our desire. Our desire should be to be with him. And that should be enough. We don't need to worry about the specifics of what else heaven looks like, what we're going to do. That doesn't even matter. We're going to be with Jesus. Verse 5, Thomas says, we have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is a famous verse. It's one we've heard so many times. It's quoted often. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But it doesn't mean as much to us as it probably did to them because these three concepts, way, truth, and life, were concepts that were often spoken of in Jewish homes. It's, it's, these are words that the Jews used repeatedly, the concepts that they talked about and that they taught about. And if you look in the Psalms, you'll see these things spoken of over and over again. Jews focused on the way, on the way to live and on the ways of God. But here Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to tell you the way to the Father. He's saying, I am the way to the Father. Simply illustrated, if you came to me and asked me how to get to a location in the town in which I live, I can tell you, well, you're going to drive north on this highway, and when you get to this traffic light at this road, you're going to turn right, you're going to pass this landmark, you're going to turn left, you're going to go three more streets, you're going to turn right. And I can tell you this whole way to get there, and I've told you the way to get there. Or I can be the way you get there, and that is I can take you there myself. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus doesn't just give us the directions. He takes us to the Father. He takes us to the destination. Not only does he take us, but he walks with us. He guides us, and he sustains us on the journey. The way to God is walking with Jesus. Jesus takes you to the Father, and you can't get to the Father without him. There is no way without Jesus. Jesus says he's the truth. And the Jews talked a lot about walking in the way of truth. Now, I can teach you about being selfless, but I will fail because I am not always selfless. I am not selfless all the time. So I can teach it to you, but I'm going to fail as a teacher because I don't live up to what I'm teaching. But Jesus embodied the truth that he taught. So when he's saying he is the truth, he's saying, I am what I taught you. He was morally perfect. He embodied this truth that he had taught to his disciples. And the Jews also talked about the way or the path of life. Jesus is the life. In John 10.10, you remember we talked about the thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life abundantly. Jesus came to give us an abundant life. He is the abundant life. Abundance is found in relationship with Jesus. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. I'm in verse 8. Jesus says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? To see Jesus is to see God. So when we read the scripture and we read about Jesus. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God. We are looking above. We're looking at God. 
He says, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. Do we realize how great this truth is? The truth that to see Jesus is to see God. Do you realize how amazing this is? If something is true of Jesus, it's true of God. If it's a trait or an action that we see in Jesus, if it's the work that he's doing, when we see him do that work, when we see that trait or that action, we're seeing a trait or an action or a work of God. The words that he says, the words that Jesus speaks are the words, the very words of God. So when we see Jesus, when we're watching him here, we are watching the story of God and the love of God. In verse 15, Jesus continues, if you love me, obey my commandments. For Jesus' love is equivalent with obedience. And this is a theme that we see over and over again in the book of John. Jesus showed his love of God by his obedience to God. And that's what he's asking of his disciples. That's what he's asking of us. If you love me, obey my commandments. C.K. Barrett says, John never allowed love to devolve into a sentiment or emotion. Its expression is always moral and is revealed in obedience. Real love is shown in true obedience. So we're called to obedience, and this is a hard task. Jesus knows it. He is not asking easy things of us. He is not asking things that come naturally to us. Naturally, we do not love others the way he loved the disciples. That's not natural to us. He's asking us to do superhuman things. And so verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. This word advocate, uh, there's no adequate English translation for this word. It comes from the Greek word parakletos, parakletos, which those two parts of that word mean from close beside and to make a call. So it's someone who is called in to help us, to be close beside us. Um, Oftentimes this word is kind of used of a legal advocate, someone who's close enough to the situation to help out, to make the right call in that situation. So we are called to obedience, but we aren't left alone to do this hard task. We aren't left alone to obey because the Holy Spirit will guide us and the Holy Spirit will help us to accomplish what we've been called to. Again, in verse 23, Jesus says, all who love me will do what I say. This is the ultimate test of your love of Christ. Do you obey him? Do you obey him? If you know what he's asking of you, if you know what he has called us to, remember back in verse 17 of of chapter 13, he said, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So if we know how we're supposed to live, the test 
of our love for God, of our love for Jesus, is obedience, is doing what we've been called to do. Jesus reminds them, when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, I'm in verse 26, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. So here's two functions of the Holy Spirit, to teach us and to remind us, to teach us everything. As a Christ follower, we need to be learners. We need to be listeners. We keep learning as long as we are alive, as long as we have breath. We have not arrived. We do not know everything. You can keep reading the Bible over and over and over, and the Holy Spirit will keep teaching you and keep refining you and keep showing you new truths you haven't understood or haven't seen before. It's true. Every time I read, I'm just amazed like, God, I've read this dozens of times. How can you keep showing me new things? But it's what he does. He reveals new things to us, has a fresh word for us in new seasons. It's what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us, but he also reminds us. When we're decision-making, when we're up against a hard situation, he reminds us of what Jesus taught us. Some people sometimes call this a conscience, right? The, the feeling inside of us that says this is right or this is wrong, but it's the Holy Spirit saying this is the right way. Go in this direction. Make this choice or do this good thing right now. This is how you respond. That's the Holy Spirit reminding us of what we know to be true because Jesus taught it to us. And then Jesus says to his disciples, I'm leaving you with a gift peace of mind and heart. The peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. The peace that comes from the world or the peace that our world seeks is actually just an escape from trouble, right? It's what we say when people uh, people talk about me time or deserving a break or self-care, right? We talk about um, peace. We want to escape. We want to escape from the world. We, we want a massage. We want time at the spa. We want to go out in the woods and hunt and be away from whatever's going on at home. We want uh, to drink something or take something that will help us escape from what's going on around us. But Jesus's peace is different. It doesn't help us to escape from the world. It helps us to live in this world. And the peace comes through Jesus's work on the cross. The word peace that's used here. Um, literally means when all essential parts are joined together. It's a kind of wholeness that we have. And this wholeness of heart and mind, as Jesus said, this peace that we have is because of our salvation that Christ purchased by his death. Now, this peace sounds foolish to those who don't believe in Jesus, to those who don't know him, who haven't experienced Christ's work and haven't had the Holy Spirit come and take up residence in their lives. They don't get this. Just the other day, I was speaking with a woman, and she was talking to me about this terrible anxiety that she has. 
This woman is what I would consider to be a pre-Christian. She's learning about Christ, and she's so curious about who he is. But yet she doesn't have that peace of mind and heart that comes from knowing that no matter what goes on around her, Christ has already won the victory. Christ has already purchased her salvation. Christ loves her and her very soul is protected forever. She doesn't get that yet. And so she lives in this state of anxiousness and anxiety. That's what this gift that Jesus is talking about, this peace of mind and heart, we can only have when we believe in Jesus, when we have given ourselves to him and said, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want your Holy Spirit to come and take up residence within me. I want you to go before me. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to obey you and love you and learn more of you and have this experience of having peace because I'm settled in knowing that my eternity is in your hands. And so I tried to explain this to this woman as I talked to her. I said, the reason you don't have peace, the reason you're so anxious is because you don't have Jesus yet. And she understood what I was saying, but she wasn't ready yet to make that decision. And so we pray for her and we pray for others like her who are just so bogged down in the looking around, in seeing this world and all the trouble that there is. And we pray that they will give their hearts and their lives to Jesus so they can experience this peace, this peace that we know. And you know it, you've you've experienced it, right? You've gone through those times when things literally just feel like the world is imploding and your life is so shaky. And it's terrifying when you look around you and yet you can't explain this peace that's inside of you. It's the peace that Jesus is talking about here. So ladies, keep looking above, keep looking to Jesus, the one who gives us peace amidst whatever else is going on in this world. Have a good one.